0: Demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's the midweek edition of the PFT PM Podcast. Doing three of these a week or so during the regular season. Tomorrow, we're going to have Paul Allen, the voice of the Vikings, in advance of the Minneapolis Miracle. Going to do a little reflecting on that game and then a little fast-forwarding to the Sunday night saints vikings game but today a free form old school edition of the pftpm podcast i actually have some topics that i want to discuss then i'll answer your questions and we will go as long as we can and i may have i may depending upon how i feel when i'm done answering questions there may be an invitation to anyone who is done with the football portion of the broadcast to to make their exit So that I can talk about other things that are going on unrelated to National Football League. I want to start with this mess in Oakland where it's obvious that everyone is available. When John Gruden met with the media today and said, I don't see any further trades happening. That is hardly a moment where he announces to anyone who is listening that there will be no more trades. I don't see any more trades means we've shopped everyone and we haven't gotten any offers that we think are good enough to accept, like a first round pick for Amari Cooper. And that's one that you put a ski mask on for, frankly, the more I think about it, but there's still six days left. If a starting quarterback gets injured over the weekend, Derek Carr could be gone by Tuesday. It was 2011 when Carson Palmer had quit on the Bengals and the Sunday before the trade deadline. At that point, it was the Tuesday after week six. Jason Campbell, then the Raiders quarterback, breaks a collarbone and bing, bang, pow, in comes Derek, not Derek Carr, in comes Carson Palmer. So out could go Derek Carr by next Tuesday if we have a quarterback injury on a team that would be inclined to add Derek Carr. Or or if the Jaguars get embarrassed by the Eagles in London, you know, Blake Bortles has had three good games there, eight touchdown passes, one interception, three straight wins, 39 points per game average, I believe, for the Jaguars in those three games. If they over there go over there and get blown out by the Eagles, then that may be the last straw for Doug Marone and company with Blake Bortles. So it's still not over yet. It's just not looking as of right now like a deal is going to be made for Carr, for Gary and Conley, for any of the other Raiders who could be available. And as Vic Tafer of The Athletic pointed out on Tuesday, everyone is available. They are in full-blown rebuild mode. You can call it tanking, you can call it whatever, and I'm going to talk about tanking in a few minutes. I saw that tight end Lee Smith, and Raiders tight end Lee Smith is one of three players who spoke to Taffer on Tuesday and went on the record about the vibe in the locker room right now with all these trades happening, and Lee Smith speaking to reporters on Wednesday had a passionate defense of Derek Carr. Now, on Tuesday, it was Marcus Thompson of The Athletic, and frankly, I'm not familiar with Marcus Thompson's work, or at least I wasn't before yesterday, and that's a, a tactful way of saying I'd never heard of him. But I assume with The Athletic buying up all of these beat riders and trying to create this four-pay destination, which either is or isn't going to work, I don't think there's an in-between here. Either you go out and spend all this money on all these people and you make enough money to keep it above water or you don't and you pull the plug within two or three years. But for now, if someone is working for the athletic, I assume that person has been properly vetted, that that person has their credentials, that it's not just somebody that they put in someone's basement and said, here, make some stuff up about the team that you're covering. So I'm assuming Marcus Thompson knows what he's talking about when he says that the Raiders locker room is in disarray, and that there's a fractured relationship between Carr and his teammates, and that one of the factors is the perception that, that Carr was crying after he injured his arm in the London loss to the Seahawks. Here's what Lee Smith said today on the record as part of the regular media availability. I was born my dad's rookie year for the Dallas Cowboys, so I've been around the NFL since birth my entire life. My father played six years in this league. I'm going on eight years, So there's a lot of NFL football that's been a part of my family and a part of my life. And all these reports about this locker room being fractured with Derek Carr is the most obnoxious and ridiculous thing I've heard ever. It's to a point where it's comical and laughable that I'm even sitting here talking about it. Us as players have zero issue with Derek Carr. He is our leader. He's always been our leader. We put a C on his chest for a reason, along with Rodney Hudson. Regardless what face he makes after a tackle, what everyone wants to dive into and wear him out about attacking his character or attacking him as a leader on this football team is a joke. I hope that everyone hears me loud and clear of what a joke it is. It's frustrating, it's annoying, and it's laughable and not fair to him when it's obviously not coming from inside this locker room. Anybody can say whatever they want. Coach Gruden and Derek are going to take all the bullets. We're one in five. We're not playing the football we want to play. Coach Gruden had a lot of expectations coming in. We had a lot of expectations coming in. I understand that those two guys take most of the bullets, and those two can definitely handle it. If anybody can handle it, it's Derek Carr based off the person he is and the character he has. But to ever insinuate there's an issue inside this locker room with our leader and our captain is the biggest joke I've ever seen, and I've been around this league my whole life. My wife, because of how much she loves Derek, because my wife thanks Derek on a regular basis for helping me be a better man off the field... Based off her love for Derek, she put up a video last night, and it was Tony Gonzalez, James Harrison, and a couple other guys. And hell, they were talking about his religious belief and political views and all kinds of crazy things that have no relevance inside of our locker room and inside of our brotherhood. So the fact that, unfortunately... That was one time I actually saw some of the stupidity was because my wife was watching it. But she's a woman and she loves Derek and she listens to this nonsense and asks me about it. Unfortunately, I had to bear through six minutes of the dumbest shit I've ever heard. So the fact that Derek Carr is the best man and the best Christian man I've ever known in my life does nothing but make him a better man in this locker room. I guess you could obviously talk to the o lineman about the political stances, but that's irrelevant as well. So it's just comical. It's a joke. During that Redskins game, I was just about the only guy standing on the sideline for the National Anthem. My entire team was on the bench. I was standing. There's a picture of the o lineman sitting. I'm standing with Jalen Rashard. Rodney Hudson is the godfather of my son, for crying out loud. He was on the bench. I was standing. Our political views are irrelevant. What's relevant is that there's a brotherhood inside this locker room. It's very special and unlike any team I've ever been a part of. The attacking of our strongest leader and the strongest man in our locker room is absolute horseshit. That's all I really had to say. I'm not really interested in answering any questions, but I'm willing to answer them since you guys are all here. That's the statement posted by Michael Gelkin of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. A little bit long, but I think it needed to be heard. And in that, it seems to be a, a very strong repudiation of the Marcus Thompson report from one person. Now, look, Lee Smith is putting it out there. He's putting it out there as strongly as a guy can put it out there. So if he's wrong, man, I mean, he's gone way out on the limb if he's wrong. And I'd like to think he's in touch with the feeling in the locker room. Maybe he's not, but he's put it out there in very strong and no uncertain terms. The video he's referencing, it sounds like it's from one of the FS1 shows because that's where James Harrison has a platform now. Tony Gonzalez is working with Fox. You know, Chris Sims said something to that effect today on PFT Live the idea that guys who are very aggressively religious in the locker room can turn off teammates. And I think politically it could possibly do it as well. And I remember last year there was some talk about offensive linemen on the Raiders being put off by Derek Carr's position on the national anthem controversy that at least seemed to, for a while, fracture the team. So... Look, whether it's that, whether it's the religious beliefs, whether it's the perception of crying, who knows? Who knows? But Marcus Thompson reported what he reported. Carr engaged it yesterday. Lee Smith with his comments today. It's worth factoring in and we'll pay attention to everything that happens with the Raiders moving forward. Patrick Peterson will be on the Cardinals moving forward. He issued a statement today indicating that he will be with the team for years to come. Okay, he's got two years left on his contract after this year. And as I characterized it at PFT and on Twitter, Patrick Peterson is the new Joe Thomas. That for as long as he's with the Cardinals, it's going to feel like he's the guy whose name is going to come up every year as a potential trade target. Now, if he signs a long-term extension, maybe that changes. But that's where the proof is going to be on this one. Because it seems like whenever Joe Thomas's name came up, he had like five, six years left under contract. It was was like he perpetually had five or six years left on his deal. Peterson's got two. So he's either going to officially renew his vows with the kind of contract contract that can't easily be traded, or he's going to be traded at some point the next two years, or he walks away as a free agent. We'll see how that all plays out. But he supposedly got some sort of an assurance from owner Michael Bidwell about the direction of the team. The team's either going to be better or it's not. Right now, it's one of the worst in the NFL. But unlike the Raiders and the Giants, the Cardinals aren't engaging in a fire sale. They aren't tanking. And look, that's their prerogative. But I think like the Giants and the Raiders, they have played enough games and lost enough games that they could come to the conclusion that now is the time to sell off the assets that they have in the hopes of accumulating draft picks that would augment their effort to turn the team around in 20. 18 Chad Kelly released today by the Denver Broncos and it sure sounds like he got really really drunk I don't know that but I think it's fair to I don't know apply common sense to the reports I don't want to say speculate I think this is the application of common sense to the reports that are out there and between nine news in Denver and NFL media the idea that he showed up at Von Miller's Halloween party That at some point he became hostile and aggressive with a guest at the party. That at some point he was taken out of the party by security officials who were hired to work the party and got into it with them reportedly. And then they were trying to keep him in place while he calmed down. And he got away from security and went to a house within a block of the location of the party and entered the house. It was people he didn't know. And there's a woman with her young child on the couch at 1 a.m., And he sits down next to her. She calls for a man in the house who comes out with a a vacuum tube, one of those aluminum tubes that you use, you know, to do the extension thing and whacks him in the head with it. And Chad Kelly takes off and then he gets arrested for criminal trespass. It sounds like he got really, really drunk at the party. That's what I would assume. He's under the influence of something. This is not normal behavior. And plenty of people out there when they get excessively under the influence they engage in some very aggressive and hostile and nasty behavior some people get really happy for me on the occasions when I have more than I should I just get really happy I get really happy and then I fall asleep I don't pass out I don't black out I've never thrown up from being drunk there's always that little kernel of my brain that tells me you've had enough and this isn't a driving thing because I never drive if I'm going to have anything more than a glass of wine this is a, hey, I'm in for the night. I'm down at the barn. I'm where I'm going to be. And I know when it's time to turn off the the alcohol spigot. But until then, I just get happy. I guess if I didn't stop, maybe at some point I would turn, you know, nasty and belligerent. I don't know. It's never happened. So, and, and I'll look at it this way. All it would take for me is one occasion like that where while under the influence I get really hostile, and if I remembered any of that, I'd be so mortified I would never want to drink again, and if I blacked out and then found out the next day I did this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transformation, I would never want to drink again. You know, it's like it's like finding out you're a werewolf, right? I don't know if that's the best simile, but like once you find out that you become this other person, you stop doing the thing that makes you into the other person if this other person is a nasty and objectionable and aggressive and violent person. So it looks like Chad Kelly's got a history of that kind of behavior based upon the off-field issues he had in college. And that behavior reared its ugly head. And if he's got some sort of a substance abuse problem, then here's hoping he gets the help he needs. And, and I think that, you know, the Broncos, who have had plenty of issues with guys drinking too much. They had front office guys. Remember, they had Matt Prater. They've had issues with guys who drink more than they should. My my guess is, I was talking to somebody about this today. My guess is when they drafted Chad Kelly at the behest of his uncle, Hall of Famer Jim Kelly, he was given a pretty clear recitation of what the expectations would be. And one incident and you're gone. My guess is that's what he was told. So now the question becomes whether he's shown enough to get someone else to give him a second chance. Is this going to be a Chris Carter situation? Somebody going to say all he does is throw touchdowns? And he's going to land somewhere as a quarterback and get a chance to turn his life around. He should, right? If he's talented, he should. If he's good enough to play, there aren't enough good quarterbacks to go around. Maybe he goes to the AAF. I mean, if you can play, it's it's sad that this is the way it is, but it's the way it is. If you're good, you get another chance. If you're not, you don't get another chance. That's how it works. That's how it happens. That's how it unfolds. So we'll see what happens with Chad Kelly. But if, if he needs some sort of help, if he just needs somebody to sit down and tell him, Whether it's his Uncle Jim or somebody else. Dude, you just have to quit drinking. If that's what happened. If that's what happened. We know he got arrested for first degree criminal trespass. We know that's a fact. We know what the police report says. What we don't know is whether and to what extent he was drunk off his ass. And if he was, and if he's got an issue there, here's hoping he gets the help that he needs. Because it sure sounds like. I mean, if I had to pick one of five different possibilities as to what was going on that night, I I think if we were making odds... I I think the the clear favorite would be he got drunk off his ass. And if you change into some sort of a complete and total asshole when you drink beyond a certain point, don't drink beyond that point, or better yet, don't drink at all. Quick word on Le'Veon Bell. Since he isn't showing up this week, I don't think he's showing up until after the trade deadline. Unless, unless there's a team out there that can convince Bell to come back sign his tender, and be traded to them. Now, I've heard nothing about the Steelers giving anyone permission to speak to Bell or his agent, Adisa Bakari, about this. I've heard nothing to suggest that any team out there wants to make a play for Le'Veon Bell, but I think that's the only way he shows up before next Tuesday and gets traded. And I think he's leery about showing up before next Tuesday and signing the franchise tender because then he can get traded against his wishes. So, I still don't know whether he comes back before the Tuesday after week 10, there's a chance he sits out the whole year and assumes the Steelers will trade him next year out from under the franchise tag or maybe not even tag him again and let him leave as an unrestricted free agent and get compensatory draft pick consideration for 2020. But it sure feels like this is over between Le'Veon Bell and the Steelers. And at most, he's got six or seven more regular season games as a member of the team. And who knows how much they'll even use him. He may get what he wants that way. In that the games he plays in, James Conner will be the main focal point of the running game and the receiver out of the backfield game with Le'Veon Bell being just a guy who is a role player. And then the season ends and off goes Le'Veon Bell. With the one big caveat of what he does in the postseason because the playoff share is peanuts. In comparison to what he'll be making, it's not nearly enough money to take the risk on of jeopardizing the contract that he'd like to get on the open market. And I think there's a chance that he just leaves the Steelers after the after the regular season ends. And if they want to find him, they can find him, right? How are they gonna get the money? He doesn't. He's not employed by them anymore. They, they can't suspend him. Right? I don't know what they do at that point. I'd have to research exactly what rights the Steelers would have, but it will not surprise me if he comes back for the end of the regular season and then says, all right, the window's open on signing me to a long-term deal. Either do it or I'm not playing. And then that's it. He just He's just gone. Wouldn't surprise me if it happens, especially if James Conner stays healthy. A note on tanking before I get to your questions from today. I have said this time and again, and I will continue to say this. Tanking is real in the NFL. We're seeing it happen with the Raiders and the Giants. A fire sale is the equivalent of tanking. You're giving up on this year. You're flipping assets that would help you win more games this year for draft picks that will help you next year. And what also will help you next year is having higher draft picks each round of the picks that you already own. So you get... Three benefits from having a fire sale before the trade deadline. One, you get something in return for a guy that you very well may get rid of in the offseason. Two, your team is worse because of it, and you will get higher draft picks in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round with your own picks. And three, I can't remember what it was. Hey, at least I'm honest for a change. So that's the benefit of the fire sale, which is an acceptable Way to say tanking. And that's one, one of the reasons why there's a trade deadline. I mean, it used to be the Tuesday after week six. And by that point, can you really come to the conclusion that you're bad enough to engage in a fire sale? The Tuesday after week eight, it gives you more of an opportunity. And there are several one-win teams out there. Now, the 49ers aren't going to engage in a fire sale because they believe they can contend next year when they get their quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, back in the lineup. The Cardinals, for whatever reason, aren't engaging in a fire sale maybe they've deluded themselves into thinking that they're closer than 1-6 than would suggest, that in the aftermath of that 45-10 to beatdown they suffered at the hands of the Broncos, they, they can still turn it around. Not necessarily this year, but into next year. And then there are the Giants and the Raiders who are tanking. They are tanking. Period. They can get mad about it, they can deny it, but they are tanking. And the legitimate, at least in the eyes of the league, version of tanking is this, selling off your assets before the trade deadline. It's one of the reasons why they won't bump it back any farther, because if you bump it all the way back, let's say, let's say they bump it to week 14. By then we know which teams are done. And when those teams start trading their assets for future draft picks, it's obvious they're tanking and taking advantage of the possibility that they're going to be even worse. So they draft even higher. And that undermines the integrity of the game. See, the NFL doesn't know what to do about this disconnect between the value of having the highest possible picks in April and the incentive to be as bad as you can be in November and December to get the highest possible picks. It's out there hiding in plain sight. And it's not like the NFL has ever sent out a memo saying never talk about that. But for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is implied as part of the game and you know maybe people for NFL Network know that that's a third rail they shouldn't touch. But when we look at all the hype that gets dumped into the draft and all of the focus on getting that highest possible pick and the value that you get from that player and the draft picks given up to move a few spots that you could have moved by being worse in the season that just ended. How do you not draw a bright line back to that? How are we not aware now of the impact of losing those games on your ability to have those great spots when the time comes to tell college players where they're going to spend the first four or five years of their professional careers, why do we never talk about Why am I the only one that talks about that? Either something's wrong with me or something's wrong with everybody else. Don't answer that question, please. Don't, please, don't answer that question. I think I know the answer to the question, but it still bothers me that people will not recognize that the temptation to tank is real, and that when we get into December and teams start putting young players in the lineup so they can evaluate them. When teams start putting guys on injured reserve who may not be so injured they can't play, but they're not going to complain about it because why do they want to play the last few weeks of a, of a lost cause season? There are ways to tank. Players never tank, but the front office and ownership can configure the roster either through injured reserve or through decisions made on game day in a way that is more conducive to losing. And it's smart business. If I owned a team and we were on track to be a non-playoff team, whatever it is, non-playoff team. If I know I'm not making it to the playoffs, my attitude is let's be as bad as we can so we can become as better or as good as we can possibly be more quickly. Let's do it. Let's do it. What, who cares if you're five and 11 or two and 14 suck is suck. Now that's profound, but who cares You're going to be in a better position to get better if you draft higher. So if the season has gone off the rails, let's be as bad as we can be. That's the best thing we can do. And we're seeing it play out now in Oakland and with the New York Giants. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out as we get deeper into the regular season and as these teams continue to lose because both Oakland and the Giants are going to aspire to have the first overall pick in the draft. And if they don't understand the value of having the first overall pick in the draft, then they're just stupid. All right, let's answer some of your questions. As soon as I find the the question here, let's see. Let's see what we got. Where is the, where is the bat? See, it's more for me than for you. Here it is. There's the bat signal. Got some questions. Oh, I've got a lot of questions here. Oh man. I wouldn't have babbled for so long on the topics I'd selected if I knew there was going to be nearly 50 questions today. PFT PM Posse is a lifelong Cowboys fan. What can you tell me to give me hope for the future? Because even when Jerry's gone, Steven is going to inherit the owner GM president role and try to do what his dad never could win a Super Bowl without a football person at or near the top. I don't know that Steven is that that driven to be able to say I did it. Jerry wants to be able to say I did it. Jerry has the three trophies that he got with Jimmy Johnson's team, Jerry desperately wants to be able to say, I did it myself. I don't know that Steven Jones will be the same way. We'll see. So there's your hope. Don't assume that, that the apple is going to land right at the bottom of the tree trunk. PFTP and posse. Oh, another Cowboys question. I'll I'll give you a look because the PFTP and posse account, the guy who runs it does such a good job and is so loyal. I'll, I'll answer his questions. Why did the line judge, rather than the official that watches and is closest to the center slash long snapper, who's responsible for the safety of the center, make the call on the Cowboys long snapper with the, the snap infraction? I, I didn't see who made the call, right? Um, the bottom line is J.P. LeDucer, when he moved the ball before snapping it, he said he's done that his entire career. We had the spot shadow side-by-side of the 47-yard attempt that ended up with the snap infraction and the 52-yarder that was immediately after it where he did the exact same thing with the ball. And it looked the same to me. That was a weird, weird call. And the Cowboys could have forced overtime against Washington. Who knows what happens in overtime? I still think Jason Garrett deserves plenty of blame for not trying to score a touchdown. They had the ball on the Washington 37 with 52 seconds left and one timeout. Not as glaring as how badly. The Giants handled the clock in the last minute and 40 seconds of the game against Atlanta when they were on the Atlanta 14 and 95 seconds later, they scored. But still pretty bad. PFTP and posse, Amari Cooper was in the concussion protocol before he was traded to the Cowboys. Do they just pass him on the physical regardless with a wink, nod, fart agreement since you can't trade injured players? He must have been cleared before he was traded. I mean, that, that detail got lost in the shuffle. He had to have been cleared or the trade wouldn't have happened. PFTP and Posse, now that we see how bad the Giants and Eli are this year again, could we have unfairly and incorrectly judged Ben McAdoo as their head coach? Seems he was sabotaged by John Mara when he was forced to keep Eli. He saw it coming and tried to plan. I still think Ben McAdoo deserves a lot of blame for not handling the benching of Eli the right way. Because as the coach of the team, you're responsible for everything. Really, everything. And if you're going to make a move that could be viewed as unpopular by the fan base, you better get a a sense. You better know which way the wind's blowing on it before you make that move. And there are people in the organization who are specialists in coming to the conclusion as to whether or not the fan base would or wouldn't react negatively. And, And maybe they tried and they just got it wrong, but I don't think that's the case. I think that Ben McAdoo was just not sufficiently self-aware to even think about that. And if you need further proof, look at the Giants' suit and the slick back hair. This is not a guy who reeks of self-awareness. So I think he just did what he thought was right, and he underestimated the way that fans would react, and that was that. And the blowback was the Giants got freaked out by the fan reaction to the benching of Eli Manning, and they re-embraced him in a way that made it impossible to get rid of him this year. And they tried to convince themselves that everything would be fine and everything isn't fine. And now the rebuild is delayed by a full year because of the way that they mishandled the benching of Eli Manning last November. And I think the biggest problem was you bench him for Geno Smith, not Davis Webb. I think if you bench him for Davis Webb, at least you realize, okay, we're trying to see what we have in this kid. So we make a decision as to whether or not he's the quarterback moving forward or whether we draft one. You bench for Geno Smith, the reaction is, what the hell are we doing? This is the same former Jets quarterback we've looked down our noses at for the last five years. Like, you're putting him on the field? So they handled it very poorly, and I think that the reaction to the reaction put them in a spot where they just they just got stuck with Eli, and now it's a mess. Raiders sinister since the Raiders are in the draft pick collection business. Can you comment on the quality of the upcoming draft or is it too early? It's too early. And that's the one thing I love about watching college football. If you watch college football, if you watch a lot of college football, you will learn that there are 50 first round picks out there, 50 surefire first round picks out there for next year. And there are roughly 300 guys who will definitely be playing on Sundays in the fall in 2019. So it's too early to tell. It really is. And there's no... Look, from my standpoint, I know what moves the needle and I know what people are interested in. And I know when they're interested in. I've been doing this 18 years now and the PFT 17th anniversary is coming up next Thursday. I know what any given week, any given cycle, I know what people are interested in. And right now, no one is interested in the draft. It's part of that disconnect I talked about. The disconnect between... The incentive to tank during the season and the glorification of this useless, worthless draft process that doesn't even need to have a separate event. You, you do it all by phone, by text, by whatever. But th- th- this thing they've made into a giant tentpole that is disconnected from reality. And one of the things that I realized seven, eight years ago, all the effort that's spent obsessing over 300 guys, the minute the draft is over, what happens? There's maybe two or three of them we pay attention to until somebody emerges as a great player. Then when there's an Alvin Kamara, when there's a carry on Johnson, right? That's when somebody emerges. But even then it's just, Hey, this guy's playing really well. Not, Hey, well, let's go back to March when we wrote up our, our pre-draft assessment and, and, oh, this one was right. And that one was wrong. And he's an idiot and he's not, you don't do, it's just, it's like this weird duality It's like a, it's like a Batman, Bruce Wayne type thing. It's just weird where the draft is this island in the NFL universe that sucks up the oxygen out of the room from February until April. And as soon as it ends, it's just like, it never happened. And then you go play football, you get ready for football season and off we go. And, and it's just, it's just weird because right. Really? If, if, what we deal with in February, March, and April has any true legitimacy, then yes, there should be the conversation every November and December as to the teams that should be trying to lose. There should be. Because from February to April, there's so much emphasis on the value of being pick one instead of pick five and what it's going to cost to become pick five. Yeah, well, it wouldn't have cost anything if you just sucked a little bit better and played a little bit worse than you did down the stretch when it didn't really matter. PFTP and Posse. Oh, please don't tell me this is a... Oh, well, It's a fantasy question, but I'll make an exception because I see my son's handle in here. My first round draft pick in fantasy football, it's the PFTP and Posse League that AFLO is a member of, was Le'Veon Bell. Should I have any hope that I'll see some production out of him this year? I'm barely in second place still, humble brag. Nobody cares. Nobody cares, PFTP and Posse, about your fantasy team. I don't know what you're going to see out of Le'Veon Bell this year. I just don't. I, I wouldn't expect anything good but I'd be nervous that if I let him go, he'll show up and he'll play as well as he ever has. James Kaminsky, nearly halfway through the season. Who are your playoff picks right now? Division winners and wild card. I I don't know. It's, look, I, here's the thing. I'm going to stand on my preseason picks because I only will abandon any of my preseason picks once they are mathematically eliminated. So I'm still going with Packers Ravens for the Super Bowl. And I'm still going with whoever I pick to win every division. I remember picking the Texans to win the AFC South and feeling very bad about that when they were 0-3, but now I feel pretty good about it. They're 4-3 and 3 and they're in first place. So I'm sticking with whatever my original picks were. I'm not changing. Not changing. I did pick the Chiefs to win the AFC West. I picked the Seahawks to win the NFC West. Oh, but have they been eliminated yet? They're not eliminated. Until they're eliminated, I'm sticking with all my picks. And I'm not reshuffling the deck until I absolutely positively have to. Terry Gensler, if the Jets, if the if the, Jets, if the Steelers really want to deal Le'Veon Bell, could they give another team permission to contact him and coerce him to sign his tender and be traded? I don't know that I'd use the word coerce, but yeah, and I already laid that out. There would have to be a two-team plus Le'Veon Bell conversation, and the new team would have to convince Bell to show up, sign the tender. There'd be some terms in there that Bell would like that would get him to show up and sign. And he'd go to a new team and he'd be all in there for the rest of the year and then ostensibly become an unrestricted free agent in in March. And, you know, part of the deal may be no use of the franchise tag or transition tag on Le'Veon Bell next year. Maybe that's one of the terms that he would want. Maybe he would want some significant playing time incentives for playoff games or a significant playoff bonus. So he gets more fair compensation for playing games in January. That's what it would take. And I've heard nothing that it may happen. A red zone out with another offer for Wembley. Not out of the question. Could Shad Khan be planning to be a landlord for another NFL team when the time is right for a move? I think that would be very awkward if Shad Khan owned Wembley stadium and another team played in it, but that's exactly what's going to happen in LA with the chargers. They're playing in a stadium eventually when it's ready 2020 that Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams also owns, but I just, I look, I, I, I saw today and we wrote about this at PFT that Shad Khan is frustrated by the constant speculation that he's going to move the team to London. Well, the reason the speculation is there is because if any of the 32 teams were to be deemed as the most logical to be moved to London, it would be the Jaguars. They played a game there every year for the last six years. Your owner is aspiring to buy Wembley Stadium. Of course, that's going to be the natural consequence of those objective facts. And if Khan wants people to stop talking about the Jaguars moving to London, easy solution, quit playing games there. Nobody talks about the Packers moving to London. They've never played a game there. The Jaguars have played every year there. This will be year six. So of course, they're the team that is viewed as most likely to move there. And they'll continue to be on the radar until there are two teams in London. One, not enough. Once two teams are in London, then I think we scratch the Jaguars off the list. And maybe they can expand. You know, I've said this a few times this year. With this infusion of great young quarterback talent, maybe, just maybe, there will be enough good quarterbacks floating around that the NFL can add a couple of teams. I don't like what it would do to the standings. I like this construction of the league as it currently is configured, but... Maybe you could expand and maybe you put two teams in London. And then under that scenario, the Jaguars stay in Jacksonville or, you know, what? I mean, you can't rule out anything here. What if there's an expansion team in London and Shad Khan is the owner of that team and he sells the Jaguars and they stay in Jacksonville, right? That That's a door number three that we haven't really considered, but that's not out of the question. Expansion to London, Shad Khan owns that team and sells the Jaguars. Again, anything's possible when you're talking about billionaires who do what they want to do and other billionaires that try to find a way to placate that billionaire when there's a mutual financial interest in doing so. Raider Sinister, do the Saints adding Eli Apple make their secondary one of the best in the NFL? I, I don't know where that, I, you know, Eli Apple was being called a cancer by Landon Collins a year ago. Eli Apple's the guy who was standing around watching Rams players run by him. I don't know that Eli Apple is going to make the Saints all that better. Steven Anderson, did Gruden nudge that story about Derek Carr crying to rally the troops away from him? Seems like the next level Pat stuff of last year when everyone was at each other's throats with those reports and the team came together. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't. I need to learn and I. Here's the thing. I just gave Marcus Thompson the second the benefit of the doubt when I saw that he's writing for the Athletic and he he made a report that. It's an eye-opener, and and I know what it did at PFT. I mean, from my business standpoint, it you know, it set the site on fire yesterday. It was a major generator of interest, of clicks, and again, I, I knew about that video. I didn't do anything about that video. I, the video to me is inconclusive, and, and there's no questioning the toughness of Derek Carr, but once there's a report from a guy who is working for an organization that I am going to give the benefit of the doubt and say this is a credible organization, given all the money they have been throwing at credible reporters, I'm assuming that they've employed a, a credible reporter and they properly vetted everything with him and with his sourcing. And, and uh, I'm assuming that it's legit. Maybe it's not. I got to do some work on this and find out more about Marcus Thompson. A red zone out Does Patrick Peterson's statement. Simply throw the ball back in the Cardinals court. And if they receive a great offer, so be it. This one feels more final. This doesn't feel like just part of the posturing aimed at, at getting someone to trade for Patrick Peterson. I think the renewal of the vows is the product of people coming to the conclusion that the offer isn't going to be there. That a big enough offer to get Patrick Peterson isn't going to happen. So, you know, love the one you're with. Fittison Kane, out of all the stories and takes you've made, what brought on the most backlash from the fans, the NFL, or other? All the stories and takes you've made. Oh, God, without question. And I I don't want to go back down this rabbit hole. This was 2011, 2010. No, it was 2010, I believe. There was... a, an item from one of the Green Bay TV stations. I think it was WBAY. And I can't remember whether it was about cancer victims, whether it was about Aaron Rodgers, but there was a moment in the report where it looked pretty obvious that Aaron Rodgers, just like breezed by a cancer patient, And an older woman who was recovering from breast cancer who wanted him to sign a hat. And they didn't explain that he had signed other things for this person. It was, you know, headphones in and breezes right by her while she's standing there in the airport asking him to sign it. And I had been to a pair of funerals within the week or two before that for people who had died of cancer. And my mother died of cancer. And the whole thing just struck a really raw nerve for me. And I ripped him. And, uh, man, the Packers fan base mobilized. I mean, that was the only time in my, cause some idiot doxed me before we even knew what doxing was. Some asshole doxed me and put my phone number out there. So we were getting phone calls in the middle of the night from angry cheeseheads. That was the biggest reaction we ever got. And you know, the, the, the TV station that, that put that report out there, they eventually, they eventually expunged it cause they know what they did, right? They lit the fuse. They laid the foundation for this. And the impression they created was that Rogers had snubbed this person. And apparently he had signed other things for her in the past. And, you know, you can't, I mean, you can't stop every single time. And maybe you're thinking of something else. You get in your own little world when you got the headphones in. I get that. Now, uh, again, I don't want to go back and relitigate all that. But, yeah, that was the biggest reaction we ever got. And probably one of the reasons why. Uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers still hates me today, although there, I've given him other reasons over the years. I've just stayed honest opinions about things, but I, I don't think he likes that because as we know, he's, he can be a little sensitive. All right. Now I'm in trouble again. Burn unit. If Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan had swapped teams when being hired last year, what do you think the results would be? Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I Because would Sean McVay have acquired Jimmy Garoppolo? What would he have done about quarterback? I think Sean McVay would have gotten Kirk Cousins. I think he would be the 49ers quarterback right now. That's what I think. If it had been Sean McVay with the 49ers. And would Jared Goff have been able to run the Kyle Shanahan offense the way that Kyle Shanahan wants it to be run? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they would have. I don't know. I just don't know. It's fascinating to think about the alternate universe where Shanahan coaches the Rams and McVeigh coaches the 49ers. Jerry Bissett or Bissett, have you ever been starstruck interviewing or meeting someone? You know, I've been doing this long enough now that I don't get that way anymore. And after being inside of it and, you know, you get to meet these people and you see, I, I just, I, I just don't now. I remember when we interviewed John Madden at Super Bowl 45 in Dallas, right after we started PFT Live, and I was still kind of learning my way through this, and I didn't quite know what the hell I was doing. And I remember, I remember sitting there like talking to him, thinking I can't freaking believe I'm doing this, right? And, and also, when you listen to a guy like John Madden, it's easy to forget that at some point he's going to stop talking and you have to talk. I found myself doing that with Al Michaels when he's on the podcast or he's on PFT live, everything he says is so interesting that it's like all of a sudden it dawns on me. Oh, it's going to fall back to me to advance this conversation. I remember with Brent Musburger, when we had him on the podcast, I asked like four questions and it was great. Just let him go. It's great. He was telling great stories. And, and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to say when, when he stops. Oh, that, that's great. Tell me another. So I, yeah, I, I just think that, that the more you do it, the less you feel like it's some sort of a big deal. I mean, you know, everybody's human and all these people, you know, they're, they're just, they're, most of them are just normal people. And sometimes we lose sight of that because we build them up into something bigger than they are in large part because we only see them on TV or in these settings where they look larger than life. But when you meet him in different settings and talk to him in different settings, I think it just strips away the mystique, which is kind of good and kind of bad because a lot of the magic of being a football fan disappears once you get inside the bubble. Steph Boyardee, what's the most underrated household appliance? Are you serious? The most underrated household appliance? I have to say the toaster because it is amazing that you can take this soft piece of bread and you can put it in this appliance where you press a button and it completely transforms it. It transforms everything about it. It doesn't just brown the outside. It changes the entire texture of it. And it's better that way. You improve the thing that you've purchased by putting it in the toaster. The toaster is like the transmogrifier that Calvin would build. It's a completely different thing. It goes in one thing and it comes out a completely different thing. That's the only thing in the house that can do that other than a blender. But let me tell you, you don't want to put bread in a blender. I've tried that while well, under the influence of alcohol. Steph D, if you could bring back an all-time coach or player to see how well they would do in today's game, who would you pick and why? I want to see how Johnny Unitas would do today. Because Johnny Unitas did some incredible things passing the football back in the days when you could mug the receivers all the way down the field until the ball was in the air. I mean, he had that record of, what was it, 49 straight? Was it 49, 47, whatever it was, straight games with a touchdown pass that lasted for 50 years. I'd love to see what John Unitas would do in today's NFL. Recliner QB. Why does the Dallas Cowboys trade for Amari Cooper feel like a last gasp at giving Jason Garrett a chance? What if Jerry fires Jason and the next coach doesn't want Cooper and company? Why are they seemingly going all in when the team as a whole doesn't seem good enough to make the playoffs, much less go deep? Look, I I don't know why they did this. I don't know why you give up a first-round pick for Amari Cooper. I don't accept Jason Garrett's explanation because you have to pay him $13.9 million next year. If you just taken Calvin Ridley with the 19th pick in 2018, you pay him $11.9 million over four years combined. $13.924 million next year for Cooper. So, if they go to Joel Siegel, who completely destroyed the Raiders on the Khalil Mack deal, if you go to Joel Siegel before... 2019, and say we'd like to take this one year left and turn it into a five year deal. I mean, after all, we gave up a first round pick for this guy. It's going to look stupid if we only keep him for a year and a half. Joel Siegel's not going to say, Well, I'll cut you a break. He's going to say, Okay, well, there's two ways we can do this. Well, there's three ways we can do this. One, you pay him a long term deal that fully guarantees what he would make the first two years going. In his option year and under the franchise tag which works out to about 30.6 million fully guaranteed at signing so you do that or you uh play it out year to year and we do it after this year and then it's going to be about 36 million fully guaranteed at signing to to sign into a long-term deal after 2019 or we just hit the open market and if you want to sign him on the open market, then you're going to have to make an offer that is comparable to whatever else is out there. Now, here's the thing. Siegel will know what else is out there. And it's possible that the Cowboys would pay him more than other teams would pay him if he gets to the open market. But that amount is still less than what would be paid out under the franchise tag analysis with 13.9 plus 20%. It's possible that happens. It's still tough to do. It's, it's tough to take less than what the franchise tag analysis, what that 20% raise analysis year-to-year thing would give you and say, I want at least two years fully guaranteed. That's what they did with Des Bryant eventually. After he became a free agent, didn't become a free agent, got franchise tagged the year, he would have been a free agent. So bottom line is, um, I think the Cowboys eventually, whatever the numbers are, I think they eventually are going to have to pay more than another team would pay to keep Amari Cooper around to justify the first round pick that they gave up. And who knows if he hits the open market, look at what Sammy Watkins got on the open market. Maybe it's good to go to the open market. Maybe there's a team out there that would pay Amari Cooper a lot of money. I mean, if the Cowboys were willing to give up a first round pick, maybe there's another team that would say, yeah, we can make Amari Cooper into the guy that he was in 2015 and 2016. For now, a ton of pressure on him, on Garrett, on Dak Prescott to justify this trade. And I really think it was a mistake. Gong Show West, I find your occasional political commentary on PFTPM insightful and compelling. If you were to catch the interest of NBC News and they offered you a side gig on MSNBC as a regular contributor with reasonable freedoms, would that interest you? No. Look, I I, I watch more cable news than I should I've, and, and just as I was swearing it off, I was telling Matt Casey yesterday, I'm done watching cable news until something big happens, and then something big happened today. Yeah, I, I don't, uh, look, I don't aspire to be anything other than what I am. I don't know what I am sometimes, but I don't aspire to be anything more than that. And, you know, I, I see this parade of cable news contributors, and I, I don't I don't know that that would ever be something for me, although Lupica's on there a lot. And, and they've had me on there in the past for some of these sports issues that flare up, and you know, I I've I've said no a lot more than I've said yes in recent years because it, it, it ends up being a lot of time invested for not a whole lot of bang for the buck. Like, I don't know how much I don't know how much traffic we're driving to PFT with an afternoon appearance from my home studio on MSNBC. I just I don't I don't see that as a moneymaker. maker. Um, and, and then it just gets in the way of what I otherwise need to do because you sit up there and you wait and then you get bumped another block and you're waiting a little bit longer and we're going to come to you in 10 minutes. And it's like, are we going to do this or not? So, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm always, I'm always interested in, in doing something new because it forces you out of your comfort zone and you learn that you may have some skills that you didn't think you possessed. So, I don't know. I guess I'd be interested, but I don't. I, I'm happy. I'm perfectly happy doing what I do. And uh, I still don't quite know what that is, but I'm perfectly happy doing it. Matt Yvonne, Matt and Bean Town with the Giants and Raiders trading key starters for draft picks. Is the NFL worried about the tanking label? The Raiders have three upcoming primetime games, which could impact ratings. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the NFL likes this. The NFL loves the draft, but the NFL doesn't like the fact that there is a clear incentive to tank. And I've seen the suggestion, and every time I suggest a draft lottery, people lose their damn minds. Well, I think a draft lottery would be a great off-season tentpole activity for the NFL. The problem is the mere suggestion of a draft lottery legitimizes the tanking discussion. And I think that's why the NFL has never embraced it as a possibility. Because for now, they've managed to create this weird firewall between the obvious, you know, between the end of the season where everybody's supposedly trying to win every game, and we know that's bullshit, versus the draft where it's, it's abundantly clear that there's a reward for being bad, right? So, so to put it as simply as I can, the NFL wants us to believe that every team wants to win, 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 win every single regular season game, every 256 regular season games. There's always two teams involved that desperately want to win. And then comes the draft where you are celebrated and rewarded for being crappy. You can't reconcile the two. So I think that's one of the reasons there's no draft lottery. It's like they'll never talk about it. It's like he who should not be named. You just don't talk about it. Because if you talk about it, you legitimize it. And the next thing you know, there goes the quote-unquote integrity of the game. All right. Closing in on an hour here. Let's see how many other good questions. There are a lot of good questions today. I've answered most of them. The real 4 no If the Raiders trade Derek Carr to the Jaguars, how can the... How about, let me try this for you. Let me edit this for you, Tyler. If the Raiders trade Derek Carter to the Jaguars, can they include Blake Bortles into the deal to entice the Raiders? I don't know that that entices the Raiders. I don't, I don't know that John Gruden wants Blake Bortles. If John Gruden were out Chris Sims, what's he going to do to Blake Bortles? Reverend Markworth, should the Vikings fans be worried that Dalvin Cook's hamstring doesn't seem to be getting any better? I think they are just giving him maximum rest. Didn't he have a setback recently? Here's the thing about a hamstring. I had a hamstring injury once. And if you don't completely rest it for four to six weeks, it does not completely heal. And I pushed it and I pushed it. And it was stupid, right? That was back when I was younger and I was very active and I was doing all sorts of things extracurricularly. We played touch football. I was playing deck hockey in Pittsburgh when that. I don't even know if they still do that. I think stats worked at a deck hockey rink somewhere, though, where you don't skate. It's like street hockey, but it's a. It's this elevated contraption that got extremely slick when it rained. The the only shoes that worked on the deck hockey rink were, were Chuck Taylors, the old Converse Chuck Taylors. Everything else, you just bit it. I had to go get stitches one night because I just wiped out against the wall and, and I had like four stitches in, in uh, my eyebrow. Um, almost tore my ACL. I mean, I felt that, that just that weird tweaking. But anyway, I, you know I, I just still want to play. You still want to do it. It's fun. And I, I remember like stretching and doing everything I could. And there is no substitute for rest of that hamstring. And I think that's what the Vikings are doing. And the indication now is he's going to be out through the bye week. That gives him another three weeks to get ready. And if he could be healthy down the stretch, if he could be down the stretch, the guy he was last year before he tore his ACL, the Vikings could be very good. You get Dalvin Cook healthy. Latavius Murray's really come on. Everson Griffin is back. This is a team that could get really, really good. The offense needs consistency. I don't know how they won that game by 20 on Sunday. It didn't feel like a 20-point victory. Every fourth or fifth pass, Kirk Cousins does something that makes you say, what the hell was that? But if you can get a real running game to complement the passing game, and if Everson Griffin can come back and play at a high level, and when the Vikings get up by 7 or 10 points, if they can start putting the clamps on the opposing quarterback... With Grifferson, uh, with Grifferson, with Everson Griffin leading the way. This is a team that, that maybe can be a factor. And maybe if they go back to L.A. in January, it, it's not going to take much to have a different outcome. It was 38 31, and the Vikings were driving to potentially tie the game. It could be a different outcome, especially because you're going to have a very, very tight Rams team, I think. That's going to be the storyline for the Rams and the Chiefs in January. They better be planning the sports psychology and the hypnosis now, because I think both of those teams are going to be very, very tight when they, when they play their 1st postseason games. Reverend Mark Worth is Chad Kelly done in the NFL. I I don't know because he, he was coming along well as a quarterback and there aren't enough good quarterbacks. He may have to go play in the AAF for a year. He may have to just show that he can be trusted before he gets a real chance, but I don't know. Sham God, for a guy who takes subtle jabs at quarterbacks, he's handpicked, wait, for a guy who takes subtle jabs at quarterbacks, he's handpicked suboptimal near replacement level quarterbacking and the now failed experiment of Chad Kelly has the shine off the apple completely disappeared with John Elway and his inability to evaluate quarterbacks. Remember that after Peyton Manning and Brock Osweiler left, there was the item on the Broncos official website characterizing the 2015 quarterback depth chart as suboptimal near replacement level quarterbacking. Remember that? Yeah, look, I I think that if John Elway were working for any other team, maybe the Packers, he'd be okay because they don't have a traditional owner. I think if there was a traditional owner in play, he'd be on the hot seat or he'd already be gone. Now, he won a Super Bowl. You got to give him that. But otherwise, I think it's been a little bit rough. And, and he's the one that handpicked Vance Joseph. Now, I know they won 45 to 10 last week, but that may be the aberration. We'll find out Sunday when they go to Kansas City. If they get blown out in that game, then they're going to be right back where they were before the Cardinals game. But uh, at some point, the scrutiny has to come to uh, has to come to John Elway. I'm getting a text from somebody that wants to talk to me very urgently, and we've been going for an hour. And I suggested that I would let me just do this. Let me just do this. Um, I've got some good questions here too. I I I hate to. I hate to let me let me do this. Let me take a quick little second here. Uh, I'm going to tell this person what's up. I'm doing a podcast. Um, I'm getting a hit me hit me up ASAP. So I don't know if something's going on that I need to know about. But let's 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 keep going here. Um, What do I have here? Uh, I don't know. Sorry, this is every once in a while I have to peel back the curtain and you see what a shit show this is. PFT and posse says, please talk about the current events today at the end of the podcast. If this done, didn't come across too late, let's do this. Let, let's, I, I usually like to go out with kind of a bang or on a high note. Um, uh, and I'm scrolling through here and there's some good questions that I'm not going to get to today, but, but I got, I got to balance this all out. I'm going to say farewell to anyone who doesn't want to hear about anything unrelated to football. And I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about the news of the day. And I really haven't thought this through yet. So I don't know what I'm going to say about the news of the day. But before I say that, thank you for your patronage of the PFTPM podcast. We'll do an interview tomorrow with Paul Allen of KFAN and the voice of the Vikings. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com, PFT Live, Thursday morning, Chris Sims, yada yada. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you and we mean it. Now, goodbye. Okay. The events of today... What I tweeted, and it's impossible to tweet something that you think is perfectly middle-of-the-road, nonpartisan, without being accused of making some sort of a partisan comment. It really is. I tweeted today, and I want to make sure I get this right. I tweeted, if you're shocked by today's non-football events, you haven't been paying attention. And of course, I have plenty of people reacting very strongly to that as some sort of political commentary uh, I don't think it is. I think we're seeing what can happen when there is a president who insists on calling the media the enemy of the people and we have when we have a president who has reduced the discourse to a point where you know he, he, he it's like he he's fueled by, those moments where he's at a rally and it's like part stand-up comedy, part Dwight Schrute when he gave the speech at the convention. Remember that blood alone moves the wheels of history? That over the top speech that Jim recommended that he do based upon research he did on Mussolini. It's it's just it's because let me tell you something. There is a charisma there. And I, I, p- people say to me that, well, we have a low water mark that is going to persist in our discourse where our politicians are just going to blatantly lie without consequence because we have a president who blatantly lies without consequence. And as the elections approach, we see more and more, just say whatever you have to say. You just say it, true or not, you just say it. You say whatever you have to say to get the reaction from the crowd that's in front of you. And the mooch was on CNN today. And he looked into the camera and he he said, hey, Donald, stop lying. You don't need to lie as much as you're lying. So people know he lies, but I think he's the only one who can get away with it. I think there are various people in specific industries who can get away with chronic lying. And right now in the political industry, there's a president who can just, there's just something about it where he can pull it off. Where he can say whatever he wants and there's gonna be a certain segment of the population that never says this guy is lying through his teeth. And even if they think he is, they say that's okay. That's okay. We're going to give him a pass, right? It's like the parent that excuses every instance of bad behavior that the kid engages in. It's okay. We love him anyway, period. I don't know that anyone else can pull that off. So I don't know that the next president is going to be able to be the same way. And I see these clips from different debates of people who are trying to be like Trump and they can't, they can't pull it off, right? There is a natural, whether you like him or whether you hate him. There's a natural charisma there where he can pull it off. There is a very strong self-confidence that always comes through in everything he says. No matter how ridiculous the substance of it may be, and there have been some ridiculous statements that have been made, but the guy can pull it off. And I think it's unfortunate that tonight he's going to be at a political rally because it's, it's almost like a, 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 he's two different people. And, and I think every once in a while, you know, the, the media doesn't want to accept this because it, do, it doesn't fit the narrative. And I'm talking about the, the CNN-MSNBC narrative that this guy is bad in all respects and he needs to go. Although the moment that he goes, people are going to quit watching CNN and MSNBC to the extent that they currently are. So I think deep down they don't want him to go. But they refuse to accept the premise that it's just kind of a show. And he knows it's kind of a show when he says what he says at these political rallies. And I think I saw recently, he, he answered a question in the Oval Office along those lines. Well, no, that was different. It's different. It's different because when he goes to those things, he's just an over-the-top cartoonish figure that revels in the, the limelight and says whatever he wants to say. And he's been able to pull it off. He's been able to pull it off. Now, it would be unfortunate if he goes through with this rally tonight because I don't think he can help himself. I don't think he can do it. And he's going to end up saying something inappropriate. He does that thing with his finger and his arm where he goes back and forth side to side. The people in the back, he's referring to the media. He'll have something to say. And they'll be chanting CNN sucks. There there won't be... And, and if, there's any, if there's any effort to express any sympathy or well wishes for the folks at CNN and the fear that they had to go through today when there was, a, you know, an active device in the building and they had to clear out. It, it's not going to be, it's, it's going to be with one of those, you know, sarcastic winks or nods. So, look, I, again, I don't know what I really feel about it other than I'm not surprised by it. And I don't think anything changes as a result of it. I don't think the discourse gets cleaned up. I don't think the president changes the way he communicates. And I don't think the people in the media who want to see him go away, although who will lose a lot of money when he does, I don't think those folks are ever going to understand that, that there is a certain degree of gamesmanship that is going on here, and he knows it, and the people who are opposed to him politically haven't figured out how to play that game. That's really what it comes down to he has figured out how to rig the system to his benefit in all respects. And one of the ways you rig the system to your benefit is you always accuse everyone else of rigging the system against you. He's pulled that off. And he's operating on a level that is at once so simplistic, yet so complicated and nuanced and brilliant that others out there who have been career politicians, who have been trained and they have experience in doing it a certain way and they just, they can't and they won't. Now, look, maybe it's admirable to not be wired that way. Cause you can argue that, that this approach is completely and totally amoral, but it works, right? If this is about winning, he's winning for now. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with Robert Mueller and we don't know what's going to happen with the midterms and we, we don't know. You know, I, I saw the the Nate Silver estimate that there's an 85% chance the Democrats are going to take the House. Well, weren't people saying that there was an 85% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to be president? So that's the one thing I learned two years ago. Assume nothing, don't trust the polls. And uh, the reality is that our current president, however you feel about him, and I've probably pissed off everyone in the course of the last 10 minutes, but however you feel about him, he has cracked the code. And there's no one else out there that knows how to crack the code in opposition to him. I don't think Joe Biden can do it. I don't think when I see the candidates lining up for 2020, I mean, I look and and I, I don't know how it's going to play out. Maybe there is going to be such an overwhelming desire for change that whoever emerges as the Democratic candidate will win. But um, I, I, I we will see. We'll see. Because day in and day out, uh, and maybe I'm maybe it's, you know, I've finally gone through the anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And maybe this is acceptance speaking because I'm not used to it being this way. I, I just like a basic level of honor and respect in the discourse. I like a commitment to the truth ultimately and fundamentally. I mean, that's the way I was raised, but you know, after seeing this for nearly two years, I see a guy who can say whatever he wants with a straight face and pull it off. And I'm concerned about what he's going to say tonight. And I'm concerned that he simply will never understand that the bombs that have been sent to people who have called him out, whether it's the Clintons, whether it's Barack Obama, whether it's CNN, in in a package that was addressed to John Brennan, the, the, the guy that had his security clearance revoked for criticizing the president, I, I that's not going to change anything. There's too much at stake to suddenly stop doing what's been working. And it's been working, and they're going to continue to do it for as long as it works. So, I don't know how profound any of that is. You know, it's good that none of these devices actually went off. And it'll be interesting to see what the investigation ultimately produces and who's responsible for this. Nothing at this point would surprise me based upon who ends up being responsible for it. But I'm not surprised by it. No one should be surprised by it. And the conditions that gave rise to it, I don't think they're going to change based upon a variety of devices being sent to a variety of places with none of them actually going off. And I think if any of them have gone off, I don't know that that changes anything. But with none of them going off, I think it definitely changes nothing. And we continue to move forward to the midterm elections and to the 2020 presidential election. All right. If you hung around, thank you for that. We'll do the podcast tomorrow with Paul Allen, PFT Live with Chris Sims, and around the clock, profootballtalk.com. Have a great Wednesday